0: For me, these passages, ever since I became a Christian, as you get closer to the cross, they just become more uncomfortable for me, and that's still there as I read it. I don't want to see Jesus go through this. I don't know if you feel that or not when you're reading this, but I don't want to see him die. We've been studying Luke since July of 2020. So every Sunday morning with, you know, we've had some little breaks here and there, a Christmas series here, an Easter sermon there or whatever, but for the most part, for two and a half years, we've been trekking through Luke steadily along, and I don't know about you, but after 23 and a half chapters, I am as convinced as ever that Jesus is the greatest man to ever grace this earth, that he is God in the flesh. That he's pure and that he's innocent and he's gentle and he is kind and he's fierce and he is loyal. And it just doesn't sit right in my soul to see him treated this way. To hear any sense of guilt attached to his name. And yet there is this overriding reality as I read the scriptures where I know he has to die. Despite the fact that it doesn't sit right with me, I know that if those who are imprisoned by sin, which includes me, if if they're going to go free, they'll only go free by the shed blood of the Son of God. So Jesus must die. And the final verdict this morning is the last hurdle before the cross. And we see it removed. So starting in verse 23 in the book of Luke, Chapter 23, starting in verse 13, I should say. Luke says, Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people and said to them, You brought me this man as one who was misleading the people. And after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. I will therefore punish and release him. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified. And their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. And he released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, for whom they asked, but he delivered Jesus over to their will. Father, your word is trustworthy and good, and I pray that this morning it would... uh, find a root in our hearts Lord and that it would pass from the heart uh, to our mouths and pass uh, through our lips in the conversation and that what we learn in the word would be used uh, as we both edify one another in the church and also uh, we witness Lord to the lost world about the glory and the salvation of your son so father um, may your word do its work in us this morning we pray this in Jesus name amen As we read these verses, if you know anything about Pilate, it's actually stunning to see him act the way he acts in this passage. I think that if you don't know anything about Pilate, like historically, and you only know what you see of him in the scriptures, he kind of comes off as this guy who's He's 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 kind of a nice guy, you know. And and he doesn't he he, he really likes Jesus, but he gets his arm twisted by the people and, and he kind of comes off as this guy where you're like, "Well, he's probably all right. Like maybe I would have dinner with Pilate." You know what I mean? Pilate was not a nice guy. Like not remotely nice. He was a brutal man. And he had a reputation for being particularly brutal with Jewish people. Early in his office, he called a he caused this full-blown riot to happen in Jerusalem. Because he refused to be sensitive to the feelings of the Jewish people. Historically, whenever the Roman cavalcades would come through the streets of Jerusalem, the Roman prefects would remove the symbols of the emperor because they didn't want to incite. The Jewish people. They knew the Jewish people got upset when they saw those images because they felt like it was a transgression of the second commandment. Plus they felt like the Romans were kind of rubbing it in their face that uh, they were under the, uh, the rule of Rome. And so the Roman prefects would remove those images to keep the Jewish people at peace. Pilate said, yeah, I don't care about any of that. I'm not doing that. He refused to remove the images And so, as his cavalcade came through Jerusalem, the people went ballistic, and at one point during um, the riot that ensued, hordes of Jewish people got down on their knees on the ground, and they showed their neck, basically saying, you can cut our heads off if you want, but we will not stand for this. In another instance, Pilate executed a raid on the temple treasury in order to pay for a government-sponsored aqueduct. So imagine how you would feel if like the York County Board of Supervisors were to break in this morning and, and, and uh, by, by force of law took from us our offering and then they went and they paid for a dam to be built in the York River. Might you be upset? You know what I mean? So the Jewish people, of course, objected, and so Pilate's response was to send uh, a bunch of soldiers to go and beat them into submission. Three or four years after Jesus is crucified, Pilate ultimately loses his job because for really no good reason, he sends a bunch of soldiers to Mount Gerizim in Samaria, and there's a bunch of Samaritans there who are worshiping, and he just lays a beating on them just because he could. And Rome at that point goes, man, you're too brutal, like you're just being dumb. So they strip him of his position for being kind of like stupidly relentless and losing the favor of the people. The historian Eusebius wrote that Pilate's existence was so miserable after he lost his job that he ends up taking his own life and committing suicide. So a pretty brutal, miserable guy, not Mr. Rogers, right? Right? No red sweater, not a beautiful day in Pilate's neighborhood in any way, shape, or form. pathologically brutal man in peaceful Roman clothes. And yet, he insists in this passage on the innocence of Christ. A Jewish man standing before him and wants to let him go free. Why? I think there's a couple of possibilities. I think, number one, Pilate just doesn't really like the Jewish leadership. So the fact that it's the religious leadership of Israel that's coming to him and saying, you need to do something about this man. He doesn't like these people. He does not have a good relationship with them. So he is immediately looking at them and he has a, a very suspicious eye. What are you up to? What are you trying to manipulate me into? So he doesn't care for them. Plus, even though he's brutal, maybe on that particular day he was feeling very Roman as he dealt with Jesus, and maybe he felt like, you know, I need to uphold Roman justice here, because that's the thing about tyrants. They're just when they feel like being just, and they're unjust when they feel like being unjust. So maybe he was having a just day, and he looked at Jesus and legitimately thought, I don't see anything wrong with this guy, and I don't trust these people who are accusing him. But on top of that, we know that his wife had a dream that shook her to the core. Luke doesn't tell us about it, but Matthew does. Matthew 27, verse 19. Besides while he was sitting on the judgment seat, so he's still making his decision, his wife sent word to him, have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. We really know nothing more about this nightmare that she has. Matthew doesn't tell us any more than that. We don't need to speculate. But whatever it is, it shook her to the point that she sent an urgent message to her husband telling him, don't mess with this Jesus. And she calls him what? Righteous. And lastly, I don't think we can downplay the fact that Jesus is God in the flesh and Pilate's never been in the presence of anyone like this. And I don't care how brutal you might be and how much you might dislike the Jewish people. When your maker stands before you in human skin, it might have an impact on you even if you're not aware of who he is. He spoke with them before he sent Christ to Herod. And then John 19 shows us that there was this final interrogation before the situation with Barabbas, which we'll get into in a minute. In John 19 it says, Again, John's words are kind of stunning because you're going, wait a second. Jesus just looked at this man who has this brutal reputation and he goes, you don't have any authority over me. Unless God gave it to you, you wouldn't be able to even, you know, have any authority on this earth at all. I wouldn't be standing here in your presence today unless it was the Lord's working. You, You don't have authority over me. That could have incited Pilate to go, you know what, get the cross out. These, these this Jewish leadership's right. But instead, Pilate's response to that conversation is him again being determined to see Jesus go free. He was impressed by Jesus. And so with all of this in mind, Pilate calls together the chief priests and the rulers and the people in verses 13 through 16 and he says uh, that you know, they bring Jesus to him as a political terrorist who's a threat to Rome. He's interrogated Jesus twice. He says, I just don't think the charges are true in verse 14. He makes the point that Herod also found no guilt in Jesus. And so in light of this, Pilate has no intention of crucifying him because he doesn't believe that he deserves to die. So in verse 16, he says, I will therefore punish and release him. Now, to punish and release him is not a slap on the wrist this is a severe punishment that he is going to lay on an innocent man which is a reminder to us of the fact that Pilate is indeed brutal if if Pilate's not a brutal man then he would say I'm going to release him there's not going to be any further punishment but he's willing to lay the Roman scourging on this innocent man it's a beating with a Roman whip that had bone and metal woven into the tails Generally, they would whip someone 39 times with the whip because 40 lashes was understood to be the amount of lashes it would take to kill someone. Therefore, they would take them as close to death as they possibly could. And Rome did this. If they thought somebody was headed down a bad path, even if they hadn't committed crimes yet, they would lay a beating on them as kind of a warning to go, hey, you haven't done anything wrong yet, but you might want to stop messing around. And so that's what they're trying to do with Jesus here. Pilate's sending a message to him I think you're innocent but whatever it is you're doing to upset these people you better stop it but that's not going to be enough for the crowd they cry out together in verse 18 not for the release of Jesus but for the release of a man named Barabbas now you might notice you might be in your bible going wait a second Did Crossway misprint my ESV? What is going on here? Because it goes straight from verse 16 to verse 18. You don't have a verse 17 in your Bible. And that is because we are fairly sure it's not canon. That some manuscript writers, some scribes got a little too excited. And at some point, as they were copying the copies of the copies, They wanted to explain the custom of a prisoner being released at Passover, and they wrote it into the text, which is a big no-no, all right? You're dealing with the inspired Word of God. You don't add your own stuff in. And so we're able to look at the older manuscripts and go, "Mm, verse 17 doesn't belong. So in your English Bibles, you're holding verse 17 is not going to be there because verse 17 is not canon. However, We do get explanations from Matthew and Mark, which that's why I want to go and kind of shake those scribes and go, just let Matthew and Mark tell the story. You don't need to add anything in. But Matthew and Mark, they explained to us this custom. Matthew 27, verse 15. Now, at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. And they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. Mark 15 verse 6, now at the feast he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. So at the feast of the Passover, the Romans would release one prisoner in a sort of celebration of some sort of jubilee, uh, keeping the Jewish people pacified. They let one prisoner uh, go. And Pilate, he sees this as an opportunity to release Jesus. Jesus. This is his out. I can release Jesus. He's done nothing wrong. We'll lay a beating on him, and then he goes free, and then we can be done with all this. If we're trying to harmonize the Gospels into one narrative this morning, it seems like in the break between verses 16 and 18 would have been the time when Pilate gets the message from his wife about the dream. That's where Matthew places it, right after Pilate decides he wants to release Jesus. So it seems like he's receiving this message. As he's receiving it, the crowd gets whipped up into a frenzy. So it's almost like the religious leadership take this opportunity of silence where Pilate's receiving this message from his wife to get the chant going, crucify, crucify him, right? And so now we have a situation where the crowd is even more bloodthirsty. Barabbas was a murdering insurrectionist. Jesus is a completely innocent man. And in light of this, Pilate pleads with them again in verse 20. But they continue to cry out for Jesus to be taken to the cross in verse 21. And so for a third and final time, he tries to persuade the people in verse 22. Why? What evil has he done? I have found in him no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. But Luke says they are urgent. The Greek word means insistent. It was the word used to describe coals that burnt overnight. You know, when like you think you put out the campfire and then you wake up the next morning and the coals are still going, and you're like, "Oh man, we may have gotten away with one there." You know, some dry, dry twigs and leaves around. Uh, that is the Greek word used here. They would have used that word to describe coals like that. So the crowd is burning and simmering, and they're not going to stop. Relentless only going to be satisfied if they see Jesus hung on a cross. And Luke tells us their voices prevailed and Pilate gives in and he consents to releasing Barabbas and delivering Jesus over to the people to be crucified. Having understood the order of events and why things unfolded the way they did, before we go this morning, we have to stop and see the gospel in this passage. Luke wants us to do that. Luke wants us to see the exchange that's taking place here. The innocent one is headed to capital punishment. The guilty one is going free. The light and life of men is now going to die. The murderer is now going to live. The sinless Savior is going to complete his mission now while a prisoner like Barabbas is going to return to his family and his friends. And Luke means for us to see the gospel, to see this unfair situation and realize that it is a picture of what Christ has done for us. We know Luke wants us to do this because he has gone out of his way to record on multiple occasions here in this short passage that Jesus is innocent even in the eyes of a sinful man like Pilate. Verse 14, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Verse 15, look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. Verse 22, I have found in him no guilt deserving death. And yet, on the other hand, Luke goes out of his way to let us know who Barabbas is on multiple occasions. Verse 19, he is a man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection started in the city and for murder. And then in verse 25, he could have just said they released Barabbas, but Luke wants to remind us of who Barabbas is, of what lies in Barabbas' character, of what Barabbas has done. And so he says, he released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder. He didn't just release Barabbas. He's going, he released Barabbas, who, by the way, just in case you forgot what I said six verses ago ago is a murderer and an insurrectionist luke wants us to see the innocence of jesus who will die a criminal's death and on the other hand the depravity of barabbas who will now live as a free man and i think anybody who's tasted of the grace of god and salvation in jesus cannot help but look at the scene and relate it to our own lives Relate it to our own experience with the grace and the love of Christ. Because at the end of the day, we're like Barabbas. We were born dead in sin thanks to the spiritual acts, or should we say the unspiritual acts of our father Adam, who rebelled against God in the garden, and he has handed down those broken spiritual genetics to us throughout the generations. And thanks to that sin, you and I are much more like Barabbas than we may think. You might say, I'm not a murdering insurrectionist. Watch your mouth, man. Don't put that on me. No, but according to God's law, might you be a lying, thieving blasphemer? An adulterous, coveting idolater? See, to understand that we're like Barabbas, we can't compare ourselves to Barabbas. That's what you want to do. You're like Barabbas. No, I'm not. He's a murdering insurrectionist. I'm not that. You You can't do that. You can't play that comparison game. You can't compare yourself to the people around you. You want to, but you know, you ever notice when you compare yourself to the people around you, nobody's ever like, well, when I compare myself to like my friend Dan at work, he's like the best Christian ever, he's awesome, he shares his faith, I really compare myself to him, I don't feel very good about myself. No, people compare themselves to like their neighbor who can't get it together, you know what I mean? Like, well, I'm not great, but I'm not like so and so, you know, they don't even cut their grass, you know what I'm saying? Like. We always want to judge people according to someone that we deem to be inferior to us. We don't hold ourselves up to gold standards. But when we're trying to see whether or not we're like Barabbas, we need to hold ourselves up to the gold standard. The standard of all standard. The standard that informs every other moral standard, which is God's law. Have you kept the law of God? Have you worshipped God perfectly according to His design? Have you loved God with the entirety of your heart? Have you ever taken God's name in vain? He gave you life, and you should use his name to bless it and to praise it, but have you ever taken the name of your life-giver and used it like a cuss word, like a common word? Have you ever dishonored your mom and dad? Have you ever told a lie? It only takes one lie to be a liar. Have you ever stolen something? It only takes one theft to be a thief. Have you ever committed adultery or murder? Even if you have not committed those acts in the traditional sense, Jesus says if we lust in our hearts after someone, would wish in our hearts that we were um, having some sort of adulterous relationship with them, that that is adultery in the heart. That if we would look at someone and hate them without cause and wish them dead in our hearts without cause, that is murder in the heart because God does not just judge our actions, but He judges our thought life and He judges our intentions. Have we coveted what our neighbor has instead of being satisfied with what God has given us? Surely, if you allow your life to be held up and compared, not to Barabbas' life, not to your neighbor who can't get it together, but if you allow your life to be compared to the perfect moral law of God, you're going to find that you are guilty on every level. Multiple layers of guilt and shame. Here's how the Bible talks about those who break God's laws. Sinners like you and me. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world. Following the prince of the power of the air. The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. Carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Dead. Walking in the path of the world, following Satan, being controlled by the passions of the body, a child of wrath. This is how the Bible describes the man or the woman who has not been born again. This is our state apart from Christ, completely hopeless, apart from a divine miracle, apart from action being taken from heaven. God warned that if Adam and Eve ate from the tree, they would surely die, and we too will surely die in our sins and spend eternity paying for them unless God does something. And so what we get in the Gospel is God putting forth His only Son, His innocent Son, the second and better Adam, to come and fix what the first Adam broke. Adam was supposed to live under God's rule and under God's reign in the garden, acting as God's servant on the earth, carrying out the will of God with no influence of sin. And that ideal was shattered when Adam ate the fruit. But Jesus comes and he successfully lives the life Adam failed to live. Christ lives under His Father's rule. Christ lives under His Father's reign. He is His Father's servant on the earth. He carries out His Father's will. He submits Himself to the Father's will. And He does all of it without sinning in His actions or in His thoughts or in His intentions. So when Pilate looks at Him and says, I find no guilt in this man, I don't know how many right things Pilate said in his life, but there's few things he had ever been more right about than that. Jesus was not guilty of a single thing he had been accused of. He's not an insurrectionist. If anything, we've just seen him rebuke one of his disciples for wielding a sword. He's still accused of this, by the way. I heard political commentator Ben Shapiro say on a podcast that Jesus is nothing more than an insurrectionist who was crucified for his trouble. Oh man, he's so wrong. He's just so wrong. If he was an insurrectionist, he was a really bad one. Because the only thing that got cut off by a sword in his insurrection was an ear that he picked up and put back on the man's head through a miracle. So if he was an insurrectionist, he was a terrible insurrectionist. Of course he wasn't. He never came to take Rome down with a sword. Not yet. He came to destroy sin and death for his people. He wasn't a blasphemer. Far from it. He taught people how to worship God in spirit and truth. And yet, despite his sinlessness, Jesus is going to die on a cross that should have belonged to Barabbas. But it's not just Barabbas' cross. If we are sinners like Barabbas, then it should have been our cross. It should have been my cross. It should have been your cross. This exchange where Jesus is condemned and Barabbas goes free points us to the heart of the gospel, which is the substitutionary atonement of Christ. Christ. That Jesus did not merely die for sin, but that he died in my place for my sin as my substitute. That he died in your place for your sin. That he didn't just die in this real general way, but that he took names to Calvary. That he, he took your name and your sin to Calvary. That he assumed all of your unrighteousness and now he gives you in a very personal way, not in a very general way, but in a very personal way, he gives you his righteousness. The Apostle Paul described this gospel exchange to the Corinthian church and he said, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The Puritan Stephen Sharnock commented on this verse and said, He received our evils to bestow his good and submitted to our curse to impart us, uh, to us his blessings, sustained the extremity of the wrath we had deserved to confer upon us the grace he had purchased. The sin in us which he was free from was by divine estimation transferred upon him as if he were guilty, that the righteousness he has which we were destitute of, might be transferred upon us as if we were innocent. He was made sin as if he had sinned all the sins of men, and we are made righteous as if we had not sinned at all. The ways of God are not the ways of man. And if you were ever unsure of that, Jesus' impending death on the cross should convince you once and for all. In God's plan, he has struck a fatal blow to death with the death of his son no no finite man plans it this way in God's plan he's used sin to defeat sin I love that he turns sin against itself because no sin has ever been committed on this earth that is greater than the murder of God's son at Golgotha and yet he took that horrific sin and he has used it to defeat sin In God's plan, the Son of God has elected to suffer humiliation in order to defeat our sinful pride. We were boastfully obstinate in our opposition to God, but Jesus came in humility to die on the cross as if He was the boastfully obstinate one. In God's plan, which has the Son of God crucified for sinners right in the middle of it, our sins are removed and they are cast aside. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. You and I never would have written the plan this way. But this was his plan, and it reveals to us not only the glory of his Son, but the brilliance of the Father. The the manifold wisdom of the entire Godhead. And the brilliant theologian A.W. Pink, as he wrote about this plan and the substitutionary atonement at the heart of the plan, he says this, just as a storm cloud empties itself on the earth and then melts away under the rays of the sun, so when the storm of divine judgment had exhausted itself upon the cross, our sins disappeared from before God's face and we were received into his everlasting favor. That's the end result of God's brilliant plan for you. Everlasting favor see here's the thing about barabbas he was freed for the rest of his life or until he did something else evil and he was freed for committing acts of treason against an earthly government but if we're going to use his pardon as a parable for our salvation we've got to understand that jesus's death in our place has secured something far better than what barabbas gets in luke 23 Because Christ has not just freed us from the dominion of sin and the power of death in this life. He has not just absolved our guilt from some earthly power like the Roman government. He has freed us from sin and death forever, and He has absolved us in the eternal court of God, and we will never taste the second death. We will never feel the flames of hell. We have an eternal verdict of not guilty, and we have been guaranteed an inheritance that cannot be corrupted and is kept for us in glory. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Jesus' death has secured you the everlasting favor of God. By dying in your place, the Son has guaranteed that you experience the same love of the Father that he has experienced. Because when the Father looks at you, he sees the righteousness of Christ. Church, this is the good news of Jesus. This is the good news of the kingdom. That God has made a way for man to be made right with God through the substitutionary death of his Son. When Luther marched up to the door in Wittenberg 505 years ago tomorrow, he did it to protest the obscuring of this good news. The church was teaching that salvation was not by Christ alone, but by Christ plus works. They were selling indulgences, letters of pardon you would buy to earn your forgiveness for certain sins you had committed. Or better yet, you could buy indulgences to shorten your time in purgatory, almost like booking a flight way in advance to get cheaper rates. What were the poor to do? They couldn't afford letters of pardon. They couldn't afford indulgences. Were they to suffer in their sins forever? Save up all their money? Have any hope of not suffering under the heat of purgatory for centuries? And of course, just so happens the church was building the new St. Peter's Basilica. And history tells us the early stages of that building were almost completely funded by the sale of indulgences. You might think, why didn't the people just read their Bibles? And see, there's nothing in there about that. Why didn't they just read 2 Corinthians 5.21 and realize they're a sinner like Barabbas. And by the substitutionary death of Christ, they get to go free. And they get the righteousness of Christ because Jesus suffered for their sin. Well, they didn't have access to the Bible. That's why. Because the clergy kept the Scriptures locked up in the church. Kept them locked away from the people. And Luther could not abide it. And so as he nailed it to the door, Thesis 36 and 37 said this, Every truly repentant Christian has a right to full remission of penalty and guilt, even without letters of pardon. Every true Christian, whether living or dead, has part in all the blessings of Christ in the church, and this is granted him by God, even without letters of pardon. Do you hear what Luther was arguing for? He was arguing that every single person who repents of their sin and puts their trust in Jesus Christ will be forgiven. The gospel. No works necessary, no letters of indulgence. Every single person who repents and believes gets all the blessings of Christ, which includes the blessing of having him suffer for your sin and you getting his righteousness credited to your moral bank account. Luther himself struggled with this for years before he preached it. He was driven mad by his own sin. Just Famously, uh, one day saw the nuns uh, out, out, outside walking in their courtyard and, and the wind caught uh, one of their uh, garments and he saw just the ankle of one of the nuns. And he said, Lord, I have lost it. And he spent hours in the confession booth seeking forgiveness he was driven crazy by his own sin and for him there was this moral dilemma that couldn't get fixed this legal dilemma god is holy And if God is holy, then he should smite me off the face of the earth because I'm a sinner. And how can we fix that? That is what ate at Luther. And then he read Romans 1.17, which says, For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And so that young man who had studied law and he had seen a legal dilemma with God and he had seen there was no way out, that he was a sinner and God was holy and he was going to be judged according to God's law and he was going to be guilty. If God forgave him without punishment, justice is not done, God is not holy. How in the world am I going to get out of this Luther thought? until he read Romans 1.17. And he said, Night and day I pondered until I saw the connection between the justice of God and the statement that the just shall live by faith. Then I grasped that the justice of God is that righteousness by which through grace and sheer mercy God justifies us through faith. Thereupon I felt myself to be reborn and to have gone through open doors into paradise. The whole of Scripture took on a new meaning, and whereas before the justice of God had filled me with hate, Now it became to me inexpressibly sweet in love. If you have true faith that Christ is your Savior, then at once you have a gracious God, for faith leads you and opens up God's heart and will that you should see pure grace and overflowing love. What Martin Luther understood is that when we have trusting belief in the salvation provided by God's Son at the cross, we no longer need to fear God as one who will punish us. Christ has taken the punishment. Now we can fear him as reverent worshipers, knowing we stand righteous before him by faith. And he looks upon us as if we have never sinned, and all of his holy justice has been satisfied at the cross, and from God we now just receive everlasting favor and love. Love in his provision of daily bread. Love in his discipline when we sin and need to be corrected. Love in how he grows us. Love in tribulation. Love in prayer. Love in blessing. Love in a thousand different ways every day. But by the blood of Christ, we know God is our loving and caring Father. The band's going to come right now, lead us in a final song. And as they come, maybe you identify with Luther this morning. Maybe you are driven crazy by your own guilt before God, and you are painfully aware this morning that you have fallen short. You try to numb it with a myriad of things like so many do, right? All the S's, scrolling, streaming, substances, sustenance, stuff. But in the quiet moments of honesty, we know we are not prepared for judgment on our own the guilt in our conscience tells us that and in the gospel a way has been made for you a way has been made for barabbas from every tribe and tongue and nation to go free repenting and trusting in god's son receiving his righteousness and that way has been opened by the sinless savior stretching wide his arms and receiving the guilt for sins he never ever committed It's scandalous, but it's the good news that will save your soul. It's the great gospel exchange. Believe it. Save with Luther, here I stand, I can do no other. Nowhere else to go, no other way, nowhere else to find our sins forgiven and our guilt removed. God help us, it's just Jesus. And that's it. No one and nothing else. Believe on him. Let's pray.